So we'll make a start, and just before I um, introduce our speaker, first I'll introduce myself. For those who don't know me, I'm Helen O'Sullivan. I'm the chaplain here at St. Paul's, and it's my privilege and pleasure to be here with you this afternoon and in a moment to welcome our speaker. But I just wanted to take the opportunity to introduce Jen Powell to you, who you might have said hello to as you came through the door. So Jen has joined us recently and works on the adult learning program with Elizabeth Foy. So a key contact for you. And if you haven't already said hello and given Jen your name and address, if you're not on the uh, mailing list, you'll have the opportunity to do that at the end. So I am absolutely delighted, especially since what uh, Donna's just told me, very delighted to have the privilege of welcoming um, the Reverend Dr. Donna Lazenby with us um, today because she's about to leave us. She's about to leave London in just a couple of weeks. So it's fantastic that you were able to um, still make the time to come to see us today, especially because Donna's just come off and doing an ordination retreat as well for the Diocese of Ebbs and Ips. So it's fabulous to have you here with us. Donna has until recently been lecturer and tutor in spirituality and apologetics here in London at the St. Melitus College. That's the, one of the training um, routes for ordinands in the London Diocese. But I've just learned that she's been appointed as director to St. Melitus Southwest and her and her family will be heading off to Plymouth in just a couple of weeks. Um, she's the author of A Mystical Theology, Transcendence and Imminence in the Works of Virginia Woolf and Iris Murdoch. And Donna's PhD won the John Templeton Award for Theological Promise in 2011. And so that promise has been very much developing in your latest um, publication that you're going to be talking about. Donna's going to be sharing with us Divine Sparks, which you'll have the opportunity to buy at the end of the session today. And so if you join me in welcoming Donna this afternoon. life that you and I live every day, and started to 
that brings God's promised future into the present was just beginning to erupt in the midst of daily life. One of the times both that thing happened, and in fact it happened again today, which my husband can testify to, was I was on the uh, tube in London on the underground, something that's probably fairly familiar to a lot of us. And I don't know how many of you have had this when you've been in the tube, in the tube and that great group of Kaylee players uh, suddenly, yes, smiles of recognition, suddenly land in the tube and bring in their Kaylee instruments and start being a quite fun mixture of uh, encouraging us to dance but also a little bit cheeky and a little bit provocative and testing us for our quite deadened down ways of living and relating to each other, provoking us, go on, do it, grab a friend and have a dance. And actually I was intrigued by them because I felt like there was this joyful eruption of life into the heart of some quite deadened down rhythms, some routines and liturgies of everyday living that we have with this kind of joyful, provocative protest. And I began to feel like something of the Spirit of God was unsettling the daily landscapes of our living. I started to pay attention to this. And indeed, writing of that experience became one of the reflections in this book. That was one of my starting places. If you like, you might describe that as the more joyful texture of this set of reflection. Seeing God arriving on the landscapes of everyday living and feeling the joy and the fun and the play of that and wanting to reflect on it. But I also began to notice around the same time a kind of um, more contesting, maybe even more sinister stream of insight actually. I, uh, one of my favourite places uh, to go on my day off is Blue Water Shopping Centre. Great place, you know, nice shoes, perfume, jewelry, etc. Country room. And, uh, but as I was walking around um, this shopping centre, one of these great contemporary cathedrals of contemporary culture, actually, not accidentally built to look as such, I began to notice more and more as I walked around the cathedral space of the shopping centre the adverts that are placed to catch our vision. And I began to think after a while, is it just me? Or are so many of these adverts trying to sell us gospel-shaped values, things that only you and I can get from the gospel of Jesus Christ, actually? But these adverts of allegedly secular culture, there's no such thing, actually, but these consumerist marketing forces are trying to sell us things which really only God can give. It's something as simple as the age-defined face cream, the face cream that tries to tell us that if we use it daily, we will live forever. Our body will be immortally embalmed. We shall not die. We shall press back death. Uh, well, hallelujah, that is possible. But we know that that comes through Jesus Christ and his gift to us. Full credit to the advertisers, they at least recognise that the body has good news in store for it. Uh, this is a good news for the flesh that there is an eternal future. The church has actually often been less good at um, proclaiming that to us. But I began to walk around the world and think, I'm seeing two things going on here. I feel like I'm seeing these joyful eruptions of God arriving in everyday life, but I'm also seeing all these allegedly secular places where the world is trying to sell me what are only God's gifts to give, and it can never actually sell me those gifts. And I began to feel a little bit like a Jeremiah in the Old Testament, to be honest. I started to get really agitated about this. Not in an angry way, but in a kind of, we're surrounded by lies kind of way. We're surrounded by idols. 
beautiful imagery of my people who started drinking from these broken systems and they insist on drinking this rotting water and no life can come from that. And it's quite interesting because I feel as if I have been developing a kind of prophetic vision, uh, which is one of the gifts of the Spirit. We shouldn't be surprised in the Church of God if we find that the gift of prophecy comes to us. And I began to think more about the role of the prophets and to realise that, unlike what contemporary culture will often tell us, a prophet is not somebody who makes magical forecasts about otherwise unknown futures. A biblical prophet, a prophet in scripture, is someone who stands in the midst of that culture and talks to the culture about its relationship with God and the idols that it's set up and where it's trying to get from idols, the things that only God can give, and then also takes to God the agonies and eruptions and the distresses of the culture. So actually being a prophet, my life is it's a bloody uncomfortable place to be actually. place to be because we stand on the false line between God and our world, trying to get heaven and earth to talk to one another, trying to find these places of traction where the cogs of God and the world, if you like, can actually meet meaningfully with one another and have a discourse. And what I'm trying to do in this book, quite simply, is to write down as reflections places where I've seen both God breaking in with joyfulness by the power of the Spirit, but also these places of absurdity and strain and protest in our culture. For example, the places of false advertising or where we sold things that only God can give us. And to actually be honest about where we see the agony in those places. And I really sense that the Holy Spirit of God is trying to pull those places through the cross, if you like, and out the other side, into the light, into the place of resurrection. And I do believe that in the times in which we are living now, as the Church of God in the 21st century, allegedly moving into a post-Christendom time, the call on the Church of God to be prophets is a fresh and new and dramatic and incisive and urgent calling. I was listening to um, uh, a great theologian speaking last week, and he was saying that the Church of God has become invisible in the world because it has become too much a pale, mirroring reflection of the way by which the world already lives. Karl Barth gave us that great revelation, we're still working on it. Whereas the Church of God is meant to be visible, but if we're going to be visible, we're going to be provocative, we're going to sit in that fault line between heaven and earth, calling out to the world to find its redeemed life in Christ. We're going to be people who are filled with the Spirit, who are vocalising. We need a new age of evangelism. I think it's wonderful, wonderful that we have said for so long as the church, it cannot just be by words that we speak of Christ, that must be incarnated in our action. Absolutely right. But I do wonder whether in the times in which we're living, recovering confidence in how we speak about Christ, daring to speak into the world very clearly about who Jesus Christ is, is an urgent need. Paul did it in Athens so beautifully. Are we people who are able to stand next to the altars that our culture erects to unknown gods and say, this face cream is not actually going to grant you eternal life nor a corporeal future. 
But the altar to which you have built to God does point somewhere. It points to Jesus Christ. Do we have the courage to name him? And do we have the imagination, the prophetic imagination, to be able to see the opportunities, to see the clashes between God and world? I'm calling you, brothers and sisters, to be prophets. To be prophets in our culture. And what this little book attempts to do, it dares to actually be a piece of theology that is of some service to the Church of God. Imagine that. Please <laughs> be. I'm actually trying to be useful. It's what this little book tries to do is by giving you some of my own things that I've noticed, the pair of glasses God has given me, by sharing with you some of what I've seen, and then inviting you to reflect either on your own or with friends on where do you see this happening in the world? Where do you see the same things taking place? I'm trying to help you, I'm trying to give you a tool for your toolbox to become a prophet, to become a prophetic seer and thinker. Do you know, I think so often in our culture when people struggle to see the truth and the riches of faith, it's not an intellectual disconnect, it's an imaginative one. Our imaginations so desperately need redeeming and opening and being filled with more of it so we can imagine the possibilities that we are being offered by God. And so this book is designed to help you develop that prophetic vision. It looks at um, everything from makeup bars. Who likes makeup? Oh yes, okay. <laughs> well, I, I love it. So, <laughs> makeup bars. Um, sounds frivolous, doesn't it? That partly might be um, a sign that we live in a patriarchal culture which doesn't think that makeup bars and makeup counters um, are significant places. They are filled with spiritual valency. Um, over half of our population across the world is encouraged to use them. You pop to a, a makeup counter. I was talking to a girl who works on one the other day. I said to her, what do you see that you're called to do on a makeup bar? She said, help people discover who they are. To find the things about them that are particular, that can be enhanced by makeup and made beautiful. I stood there and thought, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. To make a particular the individual, to enhance what about them is distinctly beautiful, to gently move away from so that this gorgeous work of the chiseling Holy Spirit can take place. That's the work of the Spirit. Interesting that this particular makeup counter, their mascara is called Resurrection. <laughs> and uh, eyeshadows nearly always have mystical or ethereal names that promise these distinctly spiritual attributes that will become yours as you are sanctified and beautified. The way we treat the homeless, who are the homeless to us, well, Christ himself, of course, that's where he's promised to be. I mentioned that as one example. What does it mean to have meaningful work? I've written a reflection about that. I've written about one of my experiences last year of being um, called to speak at a local secular school's Christmas assembly to hundreds of students, it's a huge school, and, and just having this incredibly weird experience of being the lonely voice actually going to proclaim who Jesus Christ was at his nativity, while the whole church around me get caught up in this very odd, postmodern, secular cacophony of confusion where they're kind of singing Christmas carols, but you can tell no one knows why they're really doing it. And it's just pointing back to the culture, do you see the absurdity in which you are living, if you attempt to divest yourself of Christ and you are still carrying along these traditions with you, at least be honest. But do you see what you are doing? And have you really contemplated what you are going to have to lose 
if you really wish to unchristen yourself as a culture, because actually I doubt that you really have. Reflecting on the acid bath that that will leave you in. Looking at a derelict house, a beautiful village of Kent I love to go to, I watched over the course of a year a house that had fallen into absolute dereliction being slowly, sometimes rather raucously, dramatically pulled apart, stripped out, fumes of heaven knows what chalk branches flying everywhere, and slowly being brought back, interestingly, not without some suffering and distortion, and the removal of some significant bits to other places, watching this house being brought back into a beautiful order, where people now live and celebrate life. And I must admit, felt I was watching something again of the work of the Spirit of God to bring us through Christ into an ordered, beautiful life where we become nothing less than a place of the kingdom of God where birds can make their nest and rest in our branches. Another example is um, we had a church mission on our local train station. Uh, we tried to work out in my parish, where can we meet all our parishioners? We love them, we want to meet them, what will bless them at Christmas. So we worked out well. Where they all are is on the train, God bless them, at 6.30 in the morning. Where, when is that the hardest place to be? But it's the hardest place to be in the week before Christmas when it's freezing cold and you've just taken your children and got your children up and, and you've not even had a chance for a cup of tea and now you're trying to get yourself on the train. And I always remember this woman talking, um, well, I've left her, my church decided we know what we'll do. We'll turn up on the chair, we'll turn up on the train station and we will give tea and coffee and hot breakfast to our commuters in the week before Christmas at 5am when they're getting on their trains. And I always remember this woman standing there and she was so cold, her eyes were streaming with water. And she was in her duffel coat, she just got her children out of bed, she hadn't had time for tea. And she was trying to put on this red lipstick that she wasn't quite getting right because she was so tired. And my heart broke for her. I'm going off on that, but never mind. I thought, you know, Christ, that beautiful Greek word that's used of him when he sees people suffering, that he's moved in his spleen, actually. He's deeply, crunchingly disturbed when he sees suffering. And I felt like I was watching this poor woman just trying to slap on some armour, because we all know that that's what lipstick's and shoes are, armour to try and face the world, having not even had a cup of tea and so cold her eyes were streaming. And for one week, as we gave out tea and coffee, People spoke to each other. It's the only good side of the tube strikes. People spoke to each other, actually related to each other. It's so lovely watching people all shy and sure. And on day one, by day five, they know they can come and have tea and chat. And by the next week, as this summoning spirit retreated, people returned to that cold, dead down, isolated, atomistic, I have nothing to do with you, or stand up and that really became a reflection here. Am I making sense? So what I tried to do is just draw from life for a year to places where I felt God's um, arriving and giving prophetic insights into where he's moving and what he's calling to, the kind of life he's calling us to in this world, and written it down. How am I doing for time? I'm okay so far. So that's the spirit behind the book. And um, if you see on the, the contents page, which um, you won't have yet, um, I've written about 35 descriptions um, on that and to any other themes, such as people having tattoos. Tattoos are back. Who else has noticed that tattoos are back? Yeah. So I've written a reflection on what I think that might be spiritually. Love them. 
But to finish, um, I wonder if I might read you one reflection from the book to give you a sample of an example of one of these things, so it doesn't remain too abstract. How many of you know the Disney film Frozen? Do you put your hand up in the room? Yeah, Chris one of them. <laughs> so man in the room is like, yeah, so it gets brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, watch the last one. So this is going to be a total spoiler if you've not seen Frozen. But Frozen, like many fairy tales, is not for children. Um, it is for children. But actually, um, and well done Disney for, for, for noticing this. That story, this Disney's one of its latest stories, is bursting with spiritual significance. And in many ways, has encrypted within itself the hearts of the gospel and even had the imagination to cast that in terms of the kingdom of God because the imagery of kingdom is very big for Disney. And so what I'd like to do is just read you my reflection on Frozen to give you a sense of what happens, um, how, how I see uh, the kind of prophetic vision that I'd like to invite you to see. It is sometimes alleged that our culture has divested itself of its Christian heritage and has entered a post-Christian, even secular phase, as if to mark the passing of a civilization, we are asked to speak of inhabiting post-Christendom. But inspection of the same cultural consciousness reveals an imagination that is still captivated by Jesus, though there is hesitation to Christian ideas have far from disappeared from the cultural imagination, but are discovered firmly embedded, though with a distinctive unknowing enshrined, in legal, educational and moral systems, which we persistently applaud and defend, and indeed in forms of entertainment that reach out to tussle and grasp the essentials of human living. Despite a surface-level cultural amnesia, concerning the origins of our best and enduring convictions, concerning the inviolable status of honour, sacrifice, love, family, friendship, duty, progress and identity, service, community, dignity, convictions which have new parents speeding back to church for the formation of their children. Despite this surface self-forgetfulness, the subterranean levels of the collective cultural consciousness bulge rich with the bounty of hidden treasures. Periodically, these treasures surface in crystallised paradigms, offering back to the library of life especially refined instalments of the narratives that shape our deepest meaning through tales that carve our souls from earliest learning. These are not so much new devices as erupting shafts of those granites and basalts that gird our foundations as any excavation will show, and they come up glistening, these persistent gospel values. One sure storehouse of Christian theology is the world of Hollywood and Disney, and it is interesting to observe that as the repository of publicly offered Christian monumentality is repressed, the enchanted worlds presented by Disney and Hollywood only gain influence and definition, as what is oppressed in one place being indissolubly essential to the substance simply erupts to the surface elsewhere. Upon our private and public screens, themes of redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, 
self-sacrifice, atoning love, thrive and proliferate. At the heart of the recent craze, craved as much by adults as by children, so starved are we of material for maturing the spirit, is Christ himself again. As the suffering and self-offering of an unsung heroine holds the centre of Disney's recent recreation, Frozen. This Disney film calls on themes of identity, natural and supernatural gifting, power, renewal, personal and, full credit to them, ecological as a cosmic vision, friendship and discipleship, and redemption made possible through one act of self-giving, an act of true love, which is alone capable of breaking the spell that holds creation and human relationships in thrall to life, love and powers. It is an act of self-giving, which in a discreet moment unlocks the logic of deathliness, thereby equipping a spirit to move out and to fool the whole world. Everywhere in this story, the gospel is encrypted. Frozen, spoiler alert, Frozen is a tale of two sisters, Elsa and Anna. Elsa is the Snow Queen, and everything she touches freezes. The safety and freedom of her world appears to require her self-incarceration. But in this process of imprisonment, it is Elsa's own heart, actually, that we watch slowly freezing. While her rejection of herself, her sister Anna, and her community sends creation into a correspondingly deathly deep freeze. Distortions and corruptions in the human heart and mind plunge the world around to sub-zero. Elsa, Snow Queen, causes a huge amount of trouble and destruction and disorder in the film, but she is not evil. She is simply a person trying to work it all out alone, outside any relation, in other words, sin. She is a person trying to live without relationship, without community, without love, bounded by the clothes of her imaginative circuits, without faith that a greater wisdom than her own might provide a better pattern to live by, without hope for the healing of past pains and rejections and mistaken identifications, without the awareness that community actually waits to love her, accept her, and help her. As a result, propensity in Elsa's character, which are actually neutral in themselves, as the making of splendid ice rings finally testifies, Lacking guidance beyond her own limited perspective become uncontrollable sources of powerlessness, of obsessions and neuroses. The mark of Elsa's self-conceived freedom, her flight, is a race into solitary imprisonment up the North Mountain, alone she goes and makes her ice castle. She flees from community, and in her wake as she goes, all the land, trees, legs, flowers are locked solid, unbreathing, cast into an eternal winter, as little Anna has the daring to tell her. It's very Narnia. If the, heart, if the human heart is broken, the whole of creation is somehow related to that and is plunged into this deep freeze. Creation suffers the brokenness of the human heart. Sin, living a life in exile, at a distance from wisdom, from life, sets nothing and no one free, but binds hearts, minds and imaginations, and petrifies the political, social and natural world 
into a dulled-down system of status quo living. Elsa the Snow Queen believes that this disconnection constitutes her happiness and is her only way of being free. But this is only numbness, the anaesthetizing of particular questions, as indeed she sings very poignantly, cursing her own foolishness at one point. She sings, I can't be free from the storm within. I've been such a fool. There's so much fear. Who am I really? How do I live with others? How do I relate to others? What am I to do with who I really am? If I'm honest about myself, who really can love me? Am I loved? Can I be truly freed to be me, to discover who I am and who others are, not merely to live this wild, unguided freedom, which is actually a repression, a personal deep freeze? Can there be a fall? Well done, Disney, for foregrounding those deeply existential questions. Elsa the Snow Queen has not got a spell for her own breaking. But love is in pursuit. Elsa's little sister, Anna, the weaker underdog, who significantly owns no magical powers, interestingly, arrives with one vital quality. A reckless, actually I'm going to interrupt myself because I was re-watching the film last night and I noticed that the Snow Queen actually asks the crucial question of her little sister. She says, who has the power to break this spell? Who has the power to break this spell? Who has the power to undo the deathly freeze at the heart of creation? Who has the power to allow me to be myself? And the little sister Anna, the weaker underdog who has no magical powers, arrives with one vital quality. A reckless, prodigal refusal to give up on the possibility of relationship with the sister who, from earliest memory, has always been pushing her away. Sound familiar? So she comes running. The little sister with no magical powers comes running after her big sister. She is God going after the lost sheep. She is God in pursuit of his covenant's people, loving them to the ends of the earth, or where we may be more likely to find ourselves stranded up the ice mountain of self-exile, creation exile, other exile. She is God arriving as we write ourselves off to void. She is God come as much to free creation as the human being locked up at its centre. In her flight from life, Elsa the Snow Queen's consummative act of anticipated destruction is to plant a shard of ice in the pursuer's heart. One that will gradually turn little Anna into ice. Everybody's dust dealt destiny pre-Christ, we might add. The only known antidote to this outcome is, we are told, an act of true love. And, loyal to the law of fairy tale, this is interpreted by Anna to mean true love's kiss. But in a moment of choosing her own life or her sister's, Recalling Christ's own Gethsemane decision, do I pray return to the Father, or am I going to save the world? Anna turns from the lover's timely embrace, her one way to not be frozen forever, and lets instead fall on herself a blade that is about to kill her sister. The prodigal Anna, giving herself to the point of reckless ruin, freezes over entirely as she saves her sister, who has always been running away from her, and she is suspended for that moment in death. Frozen over, 
suspended in death. Here we are on Easter Saturday. What will win? But in a recognisable moment of curious mingling, where the moment of self-sacrificing death is revealed as the simultaneous moment of death-defeating love, Anna's act of love, now revealed not to dwell in true love's kiss after all, but in an act of self-outpouring, reverses the whole system and falls her to life. She's taking the plague on herself, and literally, I noticed last night, it starts at her heart. She's completely frozen, but it's from the heart that she suddenly begins to thaw outwards. The sacrament was in the giving, and Snow Queen Elsa is resurrected also, as witnessing her sister's unrelenting self-giving, she is recalled to the existence of something that has the power to reorient her nature. She stands there. Her big question has always been, throughout the film, who has the power to break this spell that has sent the whole of creation into a deep freeze and myself into profound loneliness? And she stands there in her moment of revelation, having watched the self-sacrificing act of her sister, and she says, love. Love, of course. She cries love, and in that moment, creation begins to thaw into sparkling, vivid colour, resonant, of course, of the renewing of all creation. As Elsa casts out sparkling rinks for the community to dance upon, she's no longer alone. Who she is and her gifts could become a gift for the whole community. Fairy tales, friends, are not just for children. They capture in symbolic forms the deepest yearnings and questions of human hearts. Hearts that live at the centre of an often incomprehensible, mysterious universe. And here, I believe, is our culture finding a way to talk about enshrined ideas and beliefs. Nervous of applying Christian clothing to this tale, we find other ways to make manifest our belief in the redemptive power of self-sacrificing love. The film makes magic and enchantment its declared subject. But the film reveals that, like our culture, it is actually itself enchanted and captivated by an idea that just won't go away. The idea of something whose name is love being the solution to death. Unlocking a creation otherwise held in thrall to deathly powers. Here is our culture musing over the cherished inheritance of the concept of self-sacrificing love as the key to unlock a new future. Dwelling with it, working with it, renewing it, turning it over for inspection, our culture wondering about this great idea, incarnating it, feeling its power to win us again. Meanwhile, some clever self-subversions are noteworthy too. The stereotypical staple of fairy tales, the charming prince, is revealed as a wolf in sheep's clothing, a dangerously seductive shimmerer, appearing as an angel of light. Furthermore, significantly connected, I wonder, the usually all-powerful symbol of true love's kiss is revealed as anemic, a romantic consolation, and nowhere near capable of saving the day. No one near roadworthy enough, tough enough, relentless enough to grasp and turn what is present invisibly in and lurking just behind the gesturing struggles of death and life taking place in the centre of this picture. Disney overturns its own false ideals. But there's an irony here. 
because it overturns these ideals while leaving untouched at an ever deeper underground level of freezing the unlocked potential of the real story that actually sources all its treasured symbols in this film and makes of even its most beautiful films but a glass to be seen through darkly. At the close of the film, the reconciliation close of the film, as Anna speaks to Elsa, she says, it's so good to have the kingdom gates open again. And Elsa responds, and they'll never be closed again. The film seems poignantly unconscious of the good news it is now expressing in imagery worthy of the book of Revelation. For all its icy imagery, I'm nearly done, done very well. For all its icy imagery, what Frozen reveals is what lies like a locked up memory in the packed ice of our contemporary culture. Here are scattered fragments of historical papers reporting the existence of a man called Jesus of Nazareth. Here is our haunting conviction, known in our bones but grown from where, that winning, what is actually most worth achieving in salvation, arrives most perfectly in an unexpected form of seeming weakness. We saw this recently in the Manchester attacks, where the hearts of our nation were won by the homeless man, the underdog outcast, who actually sent himself into danger in an act of love. The one we would so often cast to the outside, the underdog, the unheroic, unmagically powered hero, the weaker one, being the one that goes in and self-sacrificingly offers itself to save others. We know that the self-sacrificing self -sacrificing act of love is somehow the most important way to live our lives. We worship the underdog. This love pours itself out with that mysteriously authoritative self-giving which outwits and outshines earthly powerhouses. We simply know in our bones to admire it. And each time it arrives in slightly different dress, the tale enchants our hearts afresh with the only power that is truly power. The self-giving love that thaws the way home so that we might, in fact, not only in fiction, live happily ever after. There we go. So, that's the opening reflection. You may or may not be relieved to know it's one of the longer ones. But, uh, there would be, if you were thinking about this yourself, or whether there's some questions to make further connections between how contemporary media and film encrypts the gospel, and to think about how you might talk to people about that and explore that together. But I'm going to stop talking now because you've listened so generously, and I'd love to give you a chance to Thank you very much, Donna. I never thought that I would put Frozen on my must-watch films list, but I'm obviously I'm going to have to. Just one observation bef before we um, look for questions. I was really glad you used that um, example of the house in ruins and how that was restored and, and brought to new life. Because the first observation about the, the joyful inbreaking of the Cayley band, um, that didn't work for me. I think I would have just wanted to thump him. <laughs> so where's the role for, for melancholy and that sense of um, God breaking in through just as much in, in sadness or despair as in joy? Mm. 
Is there anything you'd like to say about? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Thank you. And um, the the book um, has some. It covers some quite stark territory, and actually does deal very honestly, very realistically with melancholy. And um, there's one reflection where um, I take. Um, I think it might be called Eclipse, but it's about the dark night of the soul. It's about being in real suffering with a sense of nothingness with a capital N. Uh, and I actually um, relate that to Peter being in that boat after he has felt that he's lost connection with Christ. And the sea is, is dark. And will any light actually arrive on the shore? And when that fire was lit by Christ and he said, come and have breakfast, that must have been a significant moment of a movement out of a sense of nothingness, meaninglessness. It's all drained out to, oh my goodness, no. Because there is always this Lord who's arriving from outside myself, lighting his lights on the beaches and inviting me to have breakfast. So I have, I'm glad you asked that because there is, there is actually a very honest wrestling with where melancholy nothingness um, some people have said that our culture is on the advent of nihilism, and I've actually really tried to talk about that as well. Lovely, thank and you. See where the Christ might redeem it. Thank you. Could I just um, remind you, please, to keep your questions quite concise, and forgive me if I interrupt, but um, if, if you'd like to ask a question, and I'll repeat it so that we, uh, we can hear for the film as well. Yes, gentlemen here. Um, I'm very interested in you saying that you gave the tea and coffee yeah. in this station, because yeah. it strikes me that one of the problems with the churches, it tends to come down to money. It tends to come down to what you can give us. Uh, one experience I had on that was we, we made a CD of Christmas carols at the church where I was the organist, and we sold them in a charity, and we did very well. We had a whole lot left, so I actually gave them out one Christmas under surprised faces that I got from people. Yeah. It just shows that actually we need to perhaps turn our whole thing around. Would you like to say something about that, about giving yeah. and sort of taking? That's such a lovely point. Oh, it, there, there wasn't so much a question there for me yes. to repeat, but it was just echoing your reflection on, on the giving of the church being important. I think what's so significant about what you said, and thank you for it, is there's some Stanley Cowboys, I think it's how you said, um, the, the church needs to live in such a way that what it does makes no sense unless Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Because we are not, and thank God for them, they're wonderful, but we're not social workers, we're not just here to do good works, we're here to do the works of God. And I find that a really excellent test for whether we should pursue a particular ministry or mission or not. When we served our tea and coffee, Carol's what you were saying, we would not take any donations. People wanted to give, but we wouldn't actually allow them to because we were so determined to do this deeply countercultural thing of just offering something for free. And what it showed me is that in our culture, true giving is scandalous and countercultural. And I actually, and we even had to convert our own congregation to it because they were like, but they're offering the money, so this is great. And um, we were saying, no, because can't you see the power, the, the culture overturning power of giving the pure gift, which of course is what God has done in His Son. So, amen to any opportunity we could find to do scandalous, prophetic, godly work and not many new the transactions of the world. A question over here and then one over there. Yeah. Um, thank you. That was 
have been reflecting on the work of our parishes, um, particularly because I don't want them to be chucked out as we look for fresh expressions of church. Yeah. And so I'm wondering how our parishes can be source, can resource that prophetic voice in our society, and how how do we speak back prophecy into our churches yeah. as a source of living water? So a question around then um, the, the opportunities that there are for fresh expressions, but what about traditional parish models and what we can offer in yeah. this work? It's such a beautiful question, and I think it's timely and important because the prophetic voice can come through all the expressions of church life and worship, I'm sure of it. Um, so there might be fresh expressions of church and wonderful, um, and it might be, um, and actually they take place across traditions, which is which is great. It might be that in a context, offering a deeply um, traditional, whatever that means, um, contemplative, candlelit opportunity is again the prophetic, scandalously unavailable anywhere else in our culture place for people to come to. So I think any church tradition culture can do this. I think the most vital thing is to about it. So if a group of people want to do this great work you've just described, I think it's so vital that we don't just try and come up with it ourselves, but that a group of people sit and pray and say, Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you open our hearts and our minds and our imaginations to see what the prophetic work for us to do in this place looks like, and then allow the spirit to guide that work. Because it's his pleasure to give us the kingdom. Gentleman on the front row. You mentioned that the crisis was historic when he was confronted with the pain. That he was not something? in his um, inside, yeah. um, trouble in his spirit when he was confronted with pain. And the more I read the gospel, the more I find that Jesus is interested in giving back dignity to the, to the person. Um, and, some, and when I think about what the church think about with this obsession, sin and trying to, um, to judge people for what they do, um, I think we need now um, this prophetic um, calling to be more focused on, on the person and trying to, to be like healers um, rather than just um, pointing the finger and saying oh, we shouldn't do this and do that, so how we can a prophetic voice that actually help people to find this abundant life that Jesus is promising that I think for many years was not fully reached in churches. So what you, you're, um, what's, obviously what Donna's saying is chiming in with lots of people thinking about the importance of prophecy in the church. If we can try and hone in on some questions for Donna to answer. Gentleman at the back. Oh. Rose, would you have a question? Divine sparks. Yes. Is that using my imagination? Is the divine spark like you say being frozen, a deep penetrating love, or is it like big fireworks mm-hmm. that you know light up and with lots of colours and everyone can see in the world? Yeah. If you're asking, if if I've understood you right, and you're asking, is that where we see the divine sparks coming through? I think beautifully in both places. I like the image of both the deep underground level of the deep penetrating love that's there, but also this sense of... And at the end of the film, all the fireworks go off 
over the kingdoms. There's this explosive dimension to it as well. Yeah. It's false. I think, yeah. If I've understood what you're asking, I know. If this is how the divine sparks are manifesting, then. And you can see that every day, like these two aspects of the divine sparks. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Um, the Desert Mothers and Fathers, um, the first um, generation of the monastic tradition, people used to go out to visit them uh, to ask them how best to make progress in the spiritual life, i.e., how do I see God? And they would say to them, and often they'd taken such a long journey to get there, they'd say, just go and sit in your cell and it will teach you everything you need to know. By which they meant, you don't need to try and escape to some fantasized elsewhere to find God. God is arriving and erupting by fireworks and in deep movements in the everyday little details of your life. That's where he arrives. So both, I would say. Lovely. Lady here and then lady here. So. What did you say? Bringing down the devil with a tea bag. Yeah, That's really, lovely. Well, one of, yeah, one of the things I reflected from that is um, you can, um, it felt like you could bring down the kingdom of Satan with a tea bag. Yeah. And what I mean by that is um, that there are so many ways of these, these kind of deadened down ways of relating to each other that actually are less than human. And 
it can feel like those ways of relating are masterful and huge and there's no way around them. It would take moving mountains to start having a conversation with the person next to me. And then you have a cup of tea and you've just subverted the whole system. And I, again, um, I mustn't talk too much because it's meant to be your chance to have questions, but I sometimes think that where the church loses heart is because we think it's harder than it is to share the love of God with people. It is that we just have to be brave enough to have the to do the little things. It does not take much to unsettle and upset the systems that would keep us living as strangers and aliens. So, the lady here. you just repeat it? Yeah, so I think your question was, how do we balance seeing God in everything, but also the church showing another way of living? Uh, which is a great question. Um, the word discernment is going through my mind. So I think it's, so Paul, I think, defines sin as missing the mark. It's almost like you shoot an arrow and you hit the wrong target with it. That's sin. So there's something about the world is so full of good things, which is why we see the graceness of them, and we see the goldness in them and the opportunity there. But it's like, this is the definition of an idol, really. It's the creature no longer orientated towards God and to God's desire for that creature, but aiming towards something else. So, for example, I like face cream. I love face cream. I use face cream, but I know it's not the source of my eternal salvation. And so it's something about holding the graceness and the beauty of the world and seeing God in his creation that he's made in so many ways, but helping us to discern, but yet the first perilous, faulty move of the creature is idolatry. To think that that thing is God. No, it is under God and must be related. So helping people to make the correct relation between the things of the world and the God that made them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, it was the chap, yes, George at the back. Hello, George. Well, um, my question is very straightforward. It seems to me that all you're really talking about is, in essence, faith and how you live through your faith. Yes. It's how you live through your faith. Yeah. That's what it seems to be saying. Yeah. That's what seems to come across, as opposed to a structural response that you have through religion or can I latch on to that so yeah. George is saying about it, it being predominantly about a question of faith rather than structure and religious structure and I suppose one thing that struck me as well is that that phrase gospel shaped promises but you talk about Jeremiah and um, so maybe gospel shaped doesn't fit perhaps with Old Testament or with other faiths so is there a bigger sphere that's the divine sphere, the divine spark, rather than narrowing it down to gospel-shaped, Christian-shaped, New Testament-shaped? Great questions. Um, I think that 
I use gospel shaped um, specifically um, because I'm quite clear on what has been offered by the Father through Jesus Christ. And those things specifically are about the overcoming of the weight of sin, um, the overturning of the darkest um, places in which we might find ourselves in life. You know, there is no depression or meaninglessness or the place to which God has not gone in his son through his death and his sense of abandonment on the cross. And then he's offered us his own life uh, through Christ, an eternal future whose name is love. And that's a promise for flesh as well as for spirit. And it is those kinds of promises that I see being offered by parts of our culture, quite specifically, which they could never actually offer or satisfy. So actually the gospel shaped thing is quite specific. Um, but as with all these things, of course, um, because of the generosity and being this beauty of creation, there will always be these larger conversations that we can have. The point about faith, absolutely. Uh, and I wonder whether there's a connection to um, if we are really and fully as much as possible living our faith, I imagine there would be an abundance of those gifts of the Spirit that Paul says we will have, Romans 8, as we live in the Spirit. And so to focus on the prophetic gift particularly is to say, and here's one of those, but if you know, this is all part of the life of faith, let's bring it alive. Let's be evangelists. Let's be prophets. And there's something about seeing for me that's become really important. Jesus says a lot, those who have eyes see, those who have ears hear. I love that phrase. It's almost like he's saying, this may all be going on around you, but are you actually seeing it and hearing it? Because there's something about tuning your vision and your hearing and opening your contemplative eyes and paying attention that will allow you to see and identify what's actually happening. And I would say, I would agree, that that is to be living the life of faith, to be seeing God at work in the world. I know we're not going to have time for all your questions. I am sorry, but I'm sure, Donna, you'd be happy to take further questions afterwards. Um, we ought to wrap up um, now, but there'll be an opportunity to um, buy Donna's book and for Donna to sign that and to chat further in a moment. Um, just to uh, thank you very much for sharing uh, those thoughts with us. We'll say, say thank you first, and then I'll, I'll tell you, remind you about the next event, but thank you very much.